would encourage you now to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9 or click in your Bible app as the as may be appropriate here. Luke 9, we're going to be looking in a moment at verses 10 through 17. The truth is we're going to be looking at quite a bit more of Luke 9, so I encourage you to keep that Bible open even after we finish reading the, the main text of the sermon. Luke 9, verses 10 through 17 here in a moment. The word miracle is a word that is often thrown around in Christian circles and is often thrown around a a little carelessly. Uh, We will pray for miracles in our own lives and we will envy those on the pages of Scripture who were the recipients of miracles. We teach and preach the miracles of Jesus as well we should, and we'll see why today, I hope. And we want those miracles to be repeated in our lives, but we tend to miss the point of miracles. We tend to to miss their main purpose. And on top of that, we aren't even always clear on what we even mean by the word miracle. If you ask most people to define miracle, at some point in the conversation, they're going to use the word supernatural, or at least the concept of that which goes beyond the natural, and yet that same person will turn right around and speak of the miracle of childbirth, a completely natural set of events. And so we are a little fuzzy in our head by what is meant by the word miracle. It's one of the reasons why the Bible doesn't actually use that word all that much. And in fact, there is no particular Greek word in the New Testament that would be uh, an exact equivalent of our word miracle. Rather, what the Bible talks more often about are signs and wonders. Things that ought to signify, point us to something. Things that ought to cause us great wonder. So that many of the signs and wonders really aren't miraculous at all. For the heavens declare the glory of God. We should be in awe and wonder at every beautiful sunset. And it ought to be for us a sign. It ought to point to the truth of the creator behind it. We need to recognize that these things point to God. And we need to recognize that even in his daily providence, things that are not miraculous at all, Nevertheless, point to the providence and protection and care of God. And yet this particular story that's before us this morning really is both a miracle and a sign and a wonder. I just used the word both with three things, so sorry about that grammatical construction there. But we need to recognize all of these things being present here. One of the reasons we struggle sometimes to recognize the sign, the the things to which these signs point is because we tend to take the miracle stories of the Bible out of their context. Imagine for a moment you're flipping through the channels on your television and you stumble upon a documentary, a war documentary, and it quickly engages your attention. And so for the next couple of hours, you watch this engrossing account of phenomenal strategy, and tragic missteps, unimaginable bravery, and probably some shameful cowardice of both life-affirming compassion shown on the battlefield, which occurs just a few feet away from brutal carnage and savagery, 
The story is masterfully woven, and it pulls you in, and you are utterly consumed with the people and events being told in this documentary. Now imagine that you were never told what battle it was, or what war it was a part of, or who was even fighting. Imagine watching all of that and not knowing even which side won or lost. Apart from that context, this otherwise awe-inspiring series of events, which might be very memorable, they really have no impact on your understanding. You know these things, but you don't know what to do with what you know because it pulls out of context. The account before us today is very much like that. It is often pulled out of context. And therefore, we don't understand the point of this miraculous event. But this is no small thing. And in fact, this is one of the few stories that actually occurs in all four of the gospel accounts you realize there are only about a dozen events in Jesus' life that transcend all four gospel accounts. Christmas doesn't make it into all four. Mark skips it altogether. But this occurs in all four gospels. And it must be important. And so we are going to take this familiar story and hopefully put it into the context and see the bigger lesson that Luke is trying to teach us. Here at the Shore Harvest Church, we believe the Bible to be the only infallible rule for faith and practice. And that means that if we are going to rightly understand signs and wonders, then we've got to understand the fullness of this book. And so let's give our attention and our ear and our hearts and our minds to the word of the Almighty. Beginning in Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 10. On their return, the apostles told him, that is Jesus, all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Let's go to the Lord asking him to guide our understanding. Lord God Almighty, we are hungry and thirsty. We hunger for meaning in our lives, for purpose, for value. We thirst for true intimacy and closeness, for knowing and being known. In this meal, 
Let us see the sign and stand in wonder. And like Peter, let us realize its meaning and its message. Amen. Certain Bible stories transcend religion and church attendance and are, generally speaking, known by everyone. This is one of those stories. In fact, the International Bible Society ranked the 10 most well-known Bible stories, and this was number eight on their list. If you're curious where that puts it, it puts it right behind Moses and the Ten Commandments and uh, just ahead of uh, Jesus turning the water into wine. So that's the kind of, it's in that category of exceedingly well-known Bible stories. I can testify to that myself. It wasn't all that long ago. I was with a group of men. Uh, as far as I know, I was the only one in that group that was a churchgoer. And we were a group of men, and we were having lunch, and some cookies came out. One guy got out a couple of cookies for himself. Another man at the lunch wanted cookies, and there weren't enough to go around. And he turned to me and said, maybe the pastor there can bless those cookies, break them, hand them out, and there will be 12 baskets left over. (laughs) This guy, who did not go to church, knew this story. He was familiar enough with this. It is a well-known Bible story. And yet, despite its familiarity, or perhaps because of its familiarity, I'm not sure we who even go to church regularly, regularly truly understand what it's teaching. And so I want us to try to put it into the wider context. And to help with that, I'm going to encourage you to look at page 13 of your bulletin. Page 13 of the bulletin. Now, even if you're not a note taker, and I, by the way, it's okay, I'm a preacher, and I don't take notes when I sit and listen to sermons. It's okay not to be a note taker. But even if you're not, I would encourage you to look at page 13 today, as I think graphically it might help us put this passage into the wider context. And so you'll notice that our passage falls in that middle box there on page 13. Luke 9, 10 through 17. So with that in mind, let's take a look at this story and kind of keep that framework in, in our heads. This is our third in sermon in the series Dinners with Jesus. And to be sure, it is another meal at which Jesus figures prominently. And yet this one is very different from the other two. For starters, this meal is not in someone's house, but rather takes place outdoors. You recall the first meal we looked at in Luke 5 was... Uh, uh, Levi, Matthew, inviting Jesus to meet his friends, the tax collectors and sinners. In Luke 7, it was a Pharisee inviting Jesus to have a conversation in his home. Here in Luke 9, we have a meal occurring outdoors. There's another way in which this one is different. Here we have Jesus not being the guest, but being the host. He's the one who is going to act as the dinner host. And everyone else is going to be his guest. And it is worth noting how that plays out. If you look at verse 10, uh, Jesus' intent was to get away from the crowds. He was looking for some quiet time, some alone time with the twelve. And yet the crowds found him out. But notice Jesus' reaction. Luke doesn't say, and he gave a heavy sigh and said, Oh, I guess I've got to go out and minister to them. That was not Jesus' reaction. Rather, he welcomed them. 
one of the uh, Mark takes the uh, the use of the word he had compassion on them. There is this picture of Jesus being very much not just okay with the crowds finding him, but of him actually looking at this as a wonderful opportunity. And it says that he what did he do? He spoke to them of the kingdom of God. Now, I don't think we should make a big too much out of this, and yeah, I think there is a little subtle something here we could file the way in the back of our heads. How many of us would be a little uncomfortable if today after church, if we go to one of the local restaurants and we go out for a Sunday dinner and we were to see somebody we know and walk up to their table and begin a conversation, we would feel a little out of place. We'd feel like we were invading their privacy if we were to then immediately start trying to evangelize them over that lunch. But imagine the other scenario. You're already seated, and somebody comes to you and says, hey, what are you talking about? What a great opportunity. They've opened the door. They've come to your table, to your situation, in which you're the host. And you say, well, I'll tell you what we're talking about. We're talking about the sermon we heard this morning. Let me tell you about it. Wouldn't that be a neat way? to evangelize someone. That's what Jesus does here. The crowds come to him, and he says, you're going to come to me, and I'm going to talk to you about what I want to talk to you about. Let's talk about the kingdom of God. And he begins to preach and teach among them. Now, we, keep, we, we go on. Uh, Jesus is not the, the guest here, but rather functioning as the host. He's a welcoming host, and we have seen that he is opening things up and talking openly about the gospel, about the preaching and teaching of the kingdom of God. One little difference here, our last two meals, prostitutes have figured prominently, and they don't here. Now, you've got a crowd of 5,000 men, and by the way, Luke is referencing 5,000 men, males, adult men, Okay, um, undoubtedly, that was how, whatever Luke's sources are here, that's how the number was reported to him, and that's how he reports it to us, which means there were certainly more than 5,000 people there, because there were undoubtedly others, women, and some maybe some younger children who were there to hear Jesus preach. And so in that crowd, there certainly were going to be tax collectors and sinners, but they do not figure as prominently in this uh, situation as they have in our previous meals so here we are still in the middle of that middle, that, that middle box on page 13, kind of looking at the details of this dinner, which we see Jesus as the host, and we see the disciples wanting to send the crowd away. I've heard some preachers talk about how the disciples here had bad attitudes, how they, they seem to be uh, 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 unwelcoming in contrast to Jesus' welcomingness. Welcomingness? Well, hospitality, there's the word I want. In contrast to Jesus' hospitality. I don't think that judgment is warranted. I'm not sure the disciples really are shooing the crowd away. If that's what their goal had been, they'd have done so earlier. The day has worn on, and they're just being practical. These people have got to be fed. Now, I, when I was a teenager, I worked for one of the dominant well-known fast food chains, and that particular store was well-run, well-managed. But when a McBusload of people would come in unexpected, we were in panic. If 50 customers showed up all at once, despite our McMountains of frozen burgers, we were going to have a tough time feeding them all. And that was in a modern restaurant setting. Well supplied, well stocked. And it was just 50 people. 
Now imagine the rural countryside where there are no fast food stores and where it's 5,000 people and 5,000 men plus the others present. I think the disciples are just being practical. These people need to be fed. And Jesus agrees. People do need to eat. Notice in verse 13 what he says. So you feed them. You give them something to eat. Now we're still in that middle box on page 13, but I want us to stick a mental pin in verse 13 because we're going to come back around to this verse as we go into the other boxes on page 13. So the disciples note that the only food they have are these five loaves and two fish. Just to put it into some context, this would be a fairly ordinary meal for a solidly middle-class person in that society. This is not the food of the wealthy, but neither is this the, the food of the utterly impoverished. The very fact that there's protein present makes this not a meal for the truly impoverished, that there were fish in that meal. So we have here just kind of the, the lunch pail of a middle-class working Joe. That's kind of what we're looking at. These loaves, by the way, would be much smaller um, than what we think of maybe as a loaf of bread. But still, five of them and a couple of fish, this is a decent meal right here. Um, uh, but the disciples you know, are convinced that based on that, that's reason enough that, that they cannot possibly feed everybody. And that having said to Jesus, this is all we have, Jesus should concede their point and say, you're right, send them all home. But that's not what Jesus does. In fact, he gives a rather surprising response. Have them all sit down. Have them sit in groups of 50. And then look at verse 16. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven, taking the loaves, and uh, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Now those four verbs... Jesus took the loaves, blessed them, broke them, and gave them to the disciples. Does that sound familiar to you at all? I hope it does. I hope you recognize that that's precisely the same order in which Luke records Jesus at the Lord's Supper. In Luke 22:19, at the institution of the Lord's Supper, Jesus, Luke uses those exact same four verbs in exactly that same sequence. Jesus took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it. And we are meant to recognize that connection as we read through Luke's gospel. That what we have here is a picture, and by the way, for all the times that we have Jesus involved in meals, there's only three of them in which we have any record that, that there was prayer before the meal. And this is one of those three the other being the Lord's Supper, the other being the meal after the road to Emmaus. And in all three cases, the meal is meant to serve as a revelation, a sign, something that points to who Jesus is. And so we're to connect this meal to those other revealing meals. That's why the sermon title is The Meal Revealed that we really are to see here who Jesus is. So what ends up happening? What else do we see here? Well, finally, it ends with they all ate and they were satisfied and there was a whole lot left over, 12 baskets left over. Uh, 
I don't want to make too much of this, but I think it's pretty safe to say that that is meant to be assigned to the 12 disciples, that there was enough left over. Each of them gets to take home a basket full if they want to, that Jesus has provided amply. So kind of that middle box, so the kind of the details, the, the, the main points of the story, Jesus welcomed the crowd, even though they invaded his private time. He preached the kingdom of God to them. He ordered the disciples to feed the crowd. He then in turn fed the crowd, taking blessing, breaking, and giving the bread. And all were satisfied with plenty left over. There it is. There's the story of the feeding of the 5,000. There's the account that makes it into all four Gospels, when so much else does not. So what do we do with it? Is it merely an interesting story about Jesus? I think at this point we need to step back and take a look at where Luke fits things in. This is where I want us to look at the other boxes on that page 13. To go back to the top of Luke chapter 9, and beginning there in verse 1, let's actually take a look at some of the context in which Luke places this. And he, Jesus, called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever you do not, I'm sorry, and wherever they do not receive you, when you leave the town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. It is certainly not the main point of our sermon, and yet we have an opportunity to learn here, so let's learn. We often will use the words disciple and apostle interchangeably. And with regard to the twelve, that's a fine thing to do. But right here we do see a distinction between disciple and apostle. Disciple means student, learner, follower, you and I are disciples, or at least we ought to be disciples of Jesus. Learners, followers, students. The twelve are also apostles. An apostle is given the power and authority of the one they represent to speak on behalf of, to work on behalf of the one they represent. Now to be sure, you and I have the power of the Holy Spirit. And we have the authority of the word of God at our, uh, at our fingertips. But we work within the bounds of it and must never go beyond it. Rather, God uses the twelve here, the apostles, to expand what we know about God. They become uh, men who go forth and proclaim the word of God in new ways. We are not free to do that. It's why that the the writings of Peter are every bit as authoritative in our lives as the writings of Jesus, or the, the words of Jesus. For we have in Peter an apostle, one empowered by God himself, to speak with authority on behalf of God. And by the way, when they come back to Jesus in Luke uh, 9.10, what does Luke call them down there? Apostles. He doesn't refer to them down there as disciples when they come back and report. Enough on that. Let's move on. More importantly for our purposes today, um, remember that mental pin I told us to stick in verse 13? What happened there? Well, Jesus had told the 12 that um, they were to, to feed the crowd. Why would he do that? 
Why would Jesus tell them to feed that crowd? Well, they've just come back from this journey, from this mission in which they were sent out, in which they were told not to take supplies with them, but rather to do what? To trust God's provision. They went out into the countryside of Galilee with no money, no bags, no food, and just the one tunic. And the message was, do you trust me? Will you go out on my behalf and believe that God, my Father, will provide for you? And they did. And he did. And now they've come back to Jesus, having experienced his provision in a first-hand way, and he says, now provide for others. And they say, well, that's impossible. That can't be done. Having just experienced God's care and provision, they don't believe that God can care and provide. And what we have here is this disconnect that all of us struggle with. We know on one level what God is capable of doing, but we don't live like it's true. And Jesus was saying to the twelve, do you believe it enough to walk in faith? Will you simply trust me and go feed them? And I think, I think it's pretty safe to say had one of the twelve simply grabbed those five loaves and two fish and started handing them out, the same miracle would have occurred. Had they acted in faith, had they trusted this Jesus, who had just provided for them, to provide for the others. Luke then moves on in, in verses 7 through 9 and, t- and seems to be sticking in this weird uh, question about, hey, what's going on here? Um, And yet we're going to see how it all ties together. So verse 7, now Herod the Tetrarch, and I don't want to get into all the geopolitics of the day. You you may be familiar with the name Herod at the birth of Jesus. This is a different Herod. This is his son. That was Herod the Great. He died shortly after Jesus was born. This is his son, Herod the Tetrarch. This is the same Herod who will be one of those who presides over Jesus' trial. Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. That would be uh, the man we know as John the Baptist, and it was this Herod who ordered his beheading, his execution. Um, Verse 8. Some said that that Elijah had appeared, and others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded. But who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Herod the Tetrarch, the son of Herod the Great, he wants to meet Jesus. He wants to know more about him. Why? To what end? You know, it's not enough for us to ask this about Herod. Luke wants us to ask this about ourselves. What interest do you have in Jesus? Why do you want to know about him? Is it a historical novelty? Do you simply like debating theology? Do you want to win at trivia night? Why do you want to know about Jesus? 
you see Luke's going to put forward here the question of why the crowds have come. Jesus, on another occasion, will chastise the crowds, pointing out that they've only come to have their bellies filled. On this occasion, he does not. But the question is there. We've got Herod. He wants to know more about Jesus for one set of reasons. We've got the crowds. They want to get close to Jesus for another set of reasons. And then we're going to see in a moment the disciples. And what Luke is trying to get us as the readers to to do is to wrestle with where do we fall? What do we want to know about Jesus? Why are you here this morning? Is it that Jesus might fill your belly and meet your temporal needs? Is it so Jesus will make you feel good about yourself? Are you looking for a a, a religious-sounding psychological patch? Why are you here? What do you want to know about this Jesus? And so we see now that the feeding of the 5,000 is put into this context where there's been this, hey, go out of the world and trust me, Jesus says to the disciples. And we step aside and we, we, enter, we, we, we meet Herod asking, who is this guy? Scratching his head with regard to Jesus. Then we have the feeding of the 5,000. Now look at the box below the center there. This question again of who am I, and look at verse 18 in Luke chapter 9. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, that is, as Jesus was praying alone, and notice Luke doesn't necessarily connect these things immediately in time. But nevertheless, Luke wants us to connect these things. That what happened at the feeding of the 5,000 has had an impact on the twelve. Now it happened that as Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered. Notice their answers are to Jesus, very similar to the answers that were given to Herod. When Herod said, who is this guy? He was told, John the Baptist. Some say John the Baptist. Why would they say that? Well, they've only met one person who could preach and teach with that kind of authority. And now he's working miracles. It seemed totally logical to them. Well, John the Baptist preached and taught with that amazing authority. He was killed, but maybe he's resurrected. That would be a miraculous thing. That would be why he's empowered. He's now come back from the afterlife. That's why he has the power to work miracles. Totally logical. This must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. Others say Elijah. That's the second time that name has popped up. Why is that? Well, we need to remember two things from the Old Testament. One, uh, Elijah didn't die. He was taken up into heaven in those fiery chariots, chariots of fire. So Elijah coming back to earth is something that was completely possible since he had not died. Also, when the Old Testament was closed, Literally, at the very last, like, three verses of the Old Testament, in the book of Malachi, you find at the very close of the Old Testament, God saying that I will send forth Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So Elijah didn't die. He could totally come back to earth. And God had promised that Elijah would come back to earth. So the fact that many are saying, well, maybe this is Elijah, again, very logical, makes sense, fits into their worldview completely. Uh, Others said it was one of the prophets of old had arisen. 
Remember Moses in Deuteronomy said that God would send a prophet like, un, like unto Moses. Maybe this is him. Then Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. Stop and ask yourself for a moment about this word Christ. We use it so frequently in conjunction with Jesus that I think sometimes we make the mistake of imagining it to be Jesus' last name. I'm Scott Shaw. He was Jesus Christ. If you were going to send him a letter, you'd address it to Mr. Christ of Nazareth. That's not what this is. Christ is not a part of his name. Or the Christ is a position, it's a title, it's, a, it's an honorific. Specifically, the word Christ is a Greek word that needn't be capitalized because it isn't necessarily a proper noun. It simply means anointed. And in that sense, it is exactly parallel to the Hebrew word Messiah, anointed. Now, to help us better understand the significance of this, I'm going to say something that is going to knock some of your socks off. Please hear me out. Before you run me out of the pulpit, out of the church, and out of town, hear me out. Jesus of Nazareth was not the first or only Messiah. He's not the first or only Christ. He's not the first or only anointed. Now, I don't want to let that linger for too long or your patience might wear out. Look at 1 Samuel 24, 7. Turn over, keep your thumb in, in Luke. Turn over to 1 Samuel 24, 7. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 291. 1 Samuel 24, 7. David has been anointed as king, but he has not yet taken the throne. He is not yet King David. You might consider him a king-elect David. He is in a conflict with Saul where Saul is trying to kill him, and David has an opportunity to kill Saul, and some of his men are encouraging him to do just that. And look at 1 Samuel 24, 7. So David... Um, uh, sorry, I have seemed to have gotten a bad... Six. Is it six? Oh, thank you. I'm glad somebody else is reading the context. 24.6, David said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's... And if you had a Hebrew Bible in front of you, the next word would be Messiah. The Hebrew word there is the Lord's Messiah to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's Messiah, anointed. Twice there in that verse, Saul is referred to as a Messiah, an anointed one. Okay, pastor, you win. I have to concede. Jesus of Nazareth is not the first Messiah. He's not the only Christ. By the way, if you look at Septuagint, the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word Christ appears twice in that same verse. But this isn't about 
some trivia thing. This isn't about going, okay, technically there's more than one Messiah, more than one. No, it's about remembering how these Hebrews, how these Jews, how these disciples were thinking. You see, for them, the word anointed is not an abstraction. It's not merely somebody important, somebody set apart. No, their experience with anointing, their experience with messiahs and Christ, was that they were kings. God anoints kings. He anointed Saul king. He anointed David king. He anointed Samuel king. Uh, Samson, uh, I'll get it right. There's another S in there. Solomon. He anointed Solomon king. You see, we got to think that way. Who is he? Who is this? Who do you say that I am? Peter answers for the twelve and says, you are the king sent by God. You are the anointed of God. You are the Messiah of God. You are the Christ of God. Why does he make that connection in light of these events? We sometimes get a bad view of kingship. We see the king as a heavy-handed sovereign, as one who is uh, perversely in charge of all things usually for his own benefit. But the royal king, the divine king, the God king, is the one who cares about his people, who provides for them. For Peter has been reflecting on the feeding of the 5,000 and going, this Jesus we're following, he provides for people. He provides abundantly for people. That makes him God's Messiah. That makes him God's king. That makes him the provider. You see, Peter and the twelve understood something that we sometimes fail to understand. And that is the role of food in human life. Have you thought about the biblical view of food? It predates the fall. It predates sin. And it postdates our glorification. There was food before there was sin, and there will continue to be food long after sin is removed. Our need for sustenance is not a function of our sinfulness, it's a function of our creatureliness. By the way, here's a trivia for you what's the very first thing God says to humanity? God speaks in Genesis 1, let there be light. The first thing he says to humanity is in Genesis 2.16. You may eat of every tree of the garden. The first recorded spoken word from God to man pertains to food. You see, though we are like God, though we bear the image of God, we are not God. We are creatures who need, who rely, who rest upon, who depend upon another. 
But what's interesting about food is not its mere need in our lives, but the gracious way in which God meets that need. Have you thought about why it is we have taste buds? And olfactory bulbs? And all these other things involved in our senses? God could have made food as mere sustenance, as mere caloric necessity, but he chooses to wrap up that need in a gracious blessing. It turns out to be something we thoroughly enjoy. And it's okay to enjoy. And in fact, God cuts us loose in the garden to enjoy it. You may eat of every tree in the garden. Knock yourselves out. Have a good time. There's a lot of good stuff here. It's one of the legitimate reasons we gather so often around food. It's okay. God gave us a joyous way to enjoy, to, to, to benefit from the things we need. And so in the midst of a meal, we are reminded of our dependence. Not just on God, by the way, but on one another. For I doubt any one of us raises all of our own food. I'm a DIY guy. I'm a do-it-yourselfer. Most of you know that about me. I'll fix my own car. I'll fix my own house. There's a lot I will do. But I don't raise my own wheat, grind my own flour, knead my own dough, and bake my own bread. Who does? We have a dependence not only on God, but on one another. And in that dependence on one another for our food, there is also joy. There's fun. There's grace. And Peter looks at the feeding of the 5,000 and says, the one who provides for us and does so abundantly, well, that's God. And then God put kings over us, that they would provide for us and protect us and take care of us. And it dawns on Peter, and I think he's speaking on behalf of the twelve, it dawns on all of them, that in the feeding of the 5,000, that sign, that wonder, that miracle, they were asking themselves, what's the point? And they were going, hey, this Jesus of Nazareth, he's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the king that was to come from God. He's the one providing for people and providing abundantly for them. In Jesus, in the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus is revealed as the, the provider king. Jaira Rex, the one who takes care and gives. And it dawns on the disciples, that's who he is. And as we wrestle with, why do we want to get close to Jesus? Why do we want to know more about him? Are we hoping he can patch up what ails us in this life? Are we hoping that he can fill our bellies in this life? 
Or do we see him as the one who is the ultimate provider of what we need? This is why Luke connects it to the Lord's table. For it's at the cross that Jesus provides that which we ultimately need above everything else. Food for the belly is only going to carry you so far. But being made right with God, being reconciled to him, that's the provision we really need. By the way, if you look at Luke 9, what's the next thing that happens? After Peter says, you are the Christ of God, what's the next thing we have recorded? What we see there is Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Why does he tell them not to tell anybody? Because they just said he's the king. What was Herod worried about? What was Herod the Great worried about? That this baby born was going to be king. What is Herod Jr. worried about? This guy might be a king. They've just said, you're the anointed of God. You're the king. And he says, you don't understand yet what that means. So keep quiet. And let me teach you what it means. And he immediately begins to say, now this is what I'm going to do as king, as the provider of God's people. I'm going to suffer and die and be raised again. The very bottom box. Flip over to Luke 22. 35 to 37. Luke 22, 35 to 37. Luke 22, 35 to 37. And Jesus said to them, and by the way, this is the same context as the Lord's Supper. Luke 22, same chapter as the institution of the Lord's Supper. And Jesus said to them in verse 35, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, reference back to Luke 9, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. What Jesus is saying to them is, Listen, you trusted me with the little things once upon a time. You learned, when you didn't trust me at the feeding of the 5,000 and I had to step in and work the miracle, you learned that I was the provider. I was the anointed of God. And I've been teaching you all along and what that means is that I'm going to die for you and be raised again on the third day. And I've just given you the institution of my supper by which you're going to remember my death. And now let me explain to you what's about to happen. You're going to go out into the world and be treated as transgressors be treated as lawbreakers, be treated as though you are sinners and violators. Go forward trusting me. I've equipped you. This time, go ahead and take money with you. Go ahead and take sandals with you. Go ahead and take a sword with you. You're equipped this time. And a few hours later, he would be dead. A couple days later, he would be raised from the dead. And a few weeks after that, he would descend into heaven telling them to go in all the world. Equipped, ready to go, with provision enough to do the task that's before them, with sustenance enough 
for the strength they need to do the work to which they have been called. In the feeding of the 5,000, the 12 recognized that it was a meal revealed. They recognized that they were to see God's Messiah. And the challenge to them was to live a life trusting him. It's the same for us today. Do you see Jesus as the one sent by God to be the provider for his people? Do you see his provision in his death and his burial and his resurrection and his ascension? And can you walk forward in faith that he has provided abundantly all you need to do the work he's called you to do? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this familiar story, but thank you for putting it in the wider context of Luke's gospel, that we might understand, as the disciples did, what it teaches about Jesus. Lord, we ask now that we would understand on a deeper, fuller level the implications for our lives, that in Jesus of Nazareth you have provided all we need to do what you have called us to do, that you have given us the cross, the grave, and the empty grave clothes so that we might go forward with your strength, with your power, with your provision. We ask for a measure of faith even as we consider this miraculous sign and wonder. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.